Hello and welcome to Saltgrass. We have another episode with Zoe Scolio in the studio with me as we talk about the Castlemaine Commons project, which she's been working on, which is an audio project. She's been collecting interviews from our community about community collectivism and coming together and resilience and support and all of that sort of thing. So yeah, we'll, we'll have a chat with Zoe in a minute. We've got two two or three interviews to share with you today from two local people who have different perspectives on what it means to be part of a community. Before we get started with with the show, I'd like to acknowledge that we are on Jara Country, home of the Jajarung people who have been caretakers and protectors of this land for tens of thousands of years. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Salt. 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 Grassroots. 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 Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. All right. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Ali. <laughs> Welcome to the show again. And Thank you. Can you maybe just give us a recap about what this project is and what you've been working on? Yeah. So I got the chance to come in a fortnight ago and have a chat with you, which was great, about this project I've been working on with the Castlemaine Commons here. And I've during these sort of lockdown times, I've been collecting stories by going for walks and talk with talks with people in the community to collect stories around community care and community organising to kind of get a sense of this place that I've only recently moved to um, as a new person living here Um, and also in response to the increasing need to care for each other and collectivise in times of increasing precarity, also brought on through the climate crisis and the pandemic, um, which has very much shown the need, our need for each other um, Mm. in order to survive and thrive. And so today I've got some excerpts of some conversations that I had with local ecologist Carl Just, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Yeah, I believe you are. And um, local writer and historian Robin Anir had a really great time um, walking with them and hearing about what came to mind so very meandering conversations and um, strolls so yeah there's just a few little clips here I don't know if we want to dive straight in or if you want to hear a bit more Ali about the project Um, oh yeah look I think the thing to mention here is uh, again we we're really inviting people to give us feedback on what you're hearing and what you see emerging out of these various audio interviews that you've collected Zoe yeah and there's a couple of ways to do it. The text in line, we'll be able to read out whatever you text into that number. We'll we'll read it out on air so people can hear what you've said. And the other thing we've done is create a Facebook event. So it's something you can find on Facebook. Either look at the Saltgrass page or mm-hmm. the Castlemaine Commons page mm-hmm. and you'll be able to find that event. And we'll be trying to direct conversation to happen in that event page. So if you express interest or something, say you're going in inverted commas to that event, you'll be able to interact with us via the event page as well. Yeah, this is very much the beginning of a hopefully an ongoing inquiry and conversation that can happen. And it's quite a broad invitation. So I think 
usually when there's times of urgency and crisis, there's a, you know, a necessary need to act. Or, But I think my approach to this collection of stories is more understanding what examples have already existed in the area, but thinking about community and the cultures that form and the friendships and relationships and solidarities that form that play out and um, can support people in times of need, but also in their daily doings. And so to sort of look at, yeah, how people have collectivised and cared for each other in order to make things possible that wouldn't otherwise be possible. So today's session as well, by um, chatting to Carl Just, for example, who's a local ecologist, was also very much opening up that frame to think of community not just being humans, humans but the more than human ecologies that we're part of. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. So we'll hear from Carl in a minute, but I thought we'd start with one of the interviews you did with Robin Ania, who is, as you said, a historian, um, and she has worked with the local library for many, many years. And so she's got uh, some perspectives on uh, what community organising has looked like historically, and I thought that would be a really great place to start with uh with uh, her descriptions of some of the really, like only as far back as white colonial history has been, but some of the ways that this town even formed via community getting together and advocating for particular things. So we'll start with that one and then we'll come back and, and share some more stories after this. So this is Robin and Ia having a talk about the history of collective action in the Castlemaine region. Yeah, and in a town like Castlemaine, you just as you look back across the history, you can see from the from the real fundamentals in the gold rush days, the needs that weren't being met. You know, very early on, um, groups got together, public meetings were held, subscriptions were raised to sow the seeds of a hospital and schools and a market and things like that, because you know they were just the staples that you needed to make a a civilised place and to bring your family to, obviously. Um, Do you... That's so fascinating to hear. I don't know much at all about the history. Do you know uh, kind of examples of how people went around about doing that in those times? Uh, Well, I mean, in the earliest times and in the times of the monster meeting, you know, it literally was putting placards on trees. Um, You know, the the town took shape and had a heart very early on, so you'd put placards around the market square which was the first one of the first sort of gathering places and uh you know it was a while before there was a newspaper but once there was things became easier that way but you know word of mouth (laughs) word of mouth worked um people had a lot to do with one another and uh you know had connections across the goldfield through back home connections or religious connections or whatever of course that was the other thing was churches um churches were formed very early on so that would have been another way that brought people together to say let's build a hospital and so on through their church meetings yeah because there are so many churches here but see that was that was the time that was that was i mean it wasn't just how you practiced your spiritual beliefs but it was how you formed a community it was how you formed a community how you found the people who shared your values and uh, worked with them towards something. And in the first instance, it would be building the church itself. But beyond that, it was, you know, community-wide. Um, so, yeah, churches were a stand-in for 
all sorts of other institutions that we we'd have today that wouldn't be as permanent that wouldn't and wouldn't have such troublesome architecture to upkeep yeah it's interesting where today you know being much more secular in lots of ways what are the institutions or the spaces um, that can hold community in such a way with sort yeah. of deep meaning but also care and a whole sort of yeah way of fostering connection well yeah and I mean some of it does seem to come down to having a building I mean I think they knew that that you build this building and not only will they come but something will also stay same with the library um, in a way and you know now our values and concerns and priorities as they're looking at the hours I guess oh, yeah, are shifting nice. and perhaps we do you know, our things can be done in any building oh, up there right up, right up top there those oh, white and grey shapes I heard the babies are also uh, somewhere oh we have, oh really because we had one it might have been one of their babies at the hospital yeah. just going back to the um, comment you made about um, and sort of gold rush times yeah. and the early institutions uh, that were formed or like people advocating for you said a hospital yeah. what was the other thing schools, was, uh, schools. Mm. Um, the market although that was always seen as a, a local government or a government responsibility but you know it's very much formalizing a market was was very um key to people's vision of how you formed a town mm. and how you gave a heart yeah. to the town so those things are important but you know really a hospital from from the word go it was like we need yeah people people were always getting sick people were always getting old lots of accidents in those times and lots of illness People needed a place to die apart from anything, anything else and someone to be with them when they did. So the hospital, um, hospital was just seen as so important from the outset. Do you know if there was much resistance met? Hello. Hello. Um, if there was much resistance met in terms of the community trying to advocate and instate some of these? No, no, no. It was always welcome. I mean, you know, these were the markers of, of civilization, and really the government itself was very keen to see the goldfields settle down and become a more civilised place. This is a place full of, you know, adventurers, as they called them, who were only interested in their own ambitions. Uh, so things like that, starting institutions, old-world institutions that, that were about caring for your fellows were always welcomed with, uh, you know, government grants and so on. But, you know, the community had to cede... Uh, support for it and usually put in some money subscribe money to kick the thing off it was really happening on the ground it wasn't you know people who'd been born to rule sort of assuming their rightful positions it was I mean it was happening in Britain to an extent that people were rising up out of the uh, out of the protest movement movements or out of the industrial towns but here it happened in a hurry and as soon as our parliament was established in the mid 1850s it had those those people in its midst from its formation and that you know it did make a big difference and it made a big difference to how because they came from the gold fields or from rural victoria you know they didn't see it as a, a city-centric enterprise you know they really knew the conditions on the ground mm. the push very early on was for government whether it was local government or colonial government to adopt some of these caring roles in an official way to provide funding for you know hospitals and, and other institute caring institutions, um, schools and 
uh, well, even just local government to make these things happen. Um, I mean, they even had to agitate to have a local government. Um, but yeah, but with all the accretions, with all the bureaucratic accretions that then happen, so they embraced that government's adoption of their concerns and their priorities at that time. Um, but yeah, the thing becomes unrecognisable and it ceases to be your own caring model pretty quickly, I think, and certainly after this passage of time, it yeah. does. It come, it's you know, hugely disconnected. Which is why, as you say, you know, we have local uh, groups popping up trying to address things, needs at a local level. But it's, you know, but that sense of, that sense of permanence is lacking. So even when an organisation gets some funding or some support, it's year to year. It's, you don't, no one builds a, 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 a building with a steep roof and, you know, solid bricks, that, well, solid until the coffee's eaten. Um, you know, it's it's year to year and manage as best you can, and we don't we guarantee nothing. We we don't really believe in you that much. Um, yeah. So that's what's that's a big difference. Yeah, that sense of permanence. This is here to stay. We will believe in this or support this forever. Uh, has been a big has been a big shift. You know, a necessary one um, in some cases, but. Yeah. And yeah. it's again where libraries are an outlier. You know, they're kind of, they're trying to bridge, uh, bridge that, the, the passage from the old way of doing things to adapting to new community needs. And, yeah. and are the more interesting for that, I think. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point you make. Um, and also as an artist who's always applying for grants um, and art exactly. projects yeah. and the level of competition and individualism yeah, exactly. that then yes. is fostered because of the way the funding is distributed yeah. and yeah. the models that exist. And, you know, in these times where, you know, there's the need for different forms of caring for each other or pooling resources or understanding not just an individual project but how it can benefit or yeah. be connected in with others who maybe have similar projects yeah. and rather than acting in competition like how to find out about each other or find ways to connect right and you know <laughs> and if you were to yeah imagine that in a in a gold rush tent model you know you'd have someone who would attend to the drudgery perhaps for some percentage of the time and you'd take turns at it and get to get to uh do your creative thing or um the rest of the time you know i mean it could be yeah like you say and it would it would do away with that to an extent with that competitiveness which must be the enemy of creativity mm, yeah it really is <laughs> yeah and also in, of community yes. you know um so building up solidarity yeah 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 but i think also that another point in that comment you made was for me was um yeah just the the need for a longer term commitment of values or yeah. ethics so i mean part of that is the fact that you know the the paradigm now which it certainly wasn't then was change is the only constant um, it's the only thing that we can rely on. So, you know, a government embracing that just says, well, you know, we support your project this year, but we're going to be more interested in something else next year. And just you've just got to ride with that. And also, of course, partisanship. So I think in governments, I mean, there's always been divisions between the two sides, or more, more than two, in governments. But uh, with the increasing partisanship, you know, what one government supports the next government will almost make a policy of not supporting um, and that didn't used to be so much the case um, it was more like 
we share these constant values. There you go. That was Robin and Nia. She said some really great things about the history of people getting together and collectivising really and and gathering as a community to agitate for for changes, especially right at the very beginning of of settlement, white settlement here, um, when it was really a wild gold rush kind of era, (laughs) the Wild West (laughs) in Australia, really, the Wild South maybe is how we'd describe it here. Um, We did get a text in um, from someone as they were listening to that saying, love you guys, which is nice. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) Um, uh, So really, one of the things that stood out for me right at the end there was the idea of sort of that competitive process of getting grants and funding that we exist in these days is kind of the enemy of creativity and then you said and of community and I really that really resonated with me because I just put in a grant Mm. application today (laughs) Mm. but I you know as someone who's worked in the creative fields and someone who's worked in community I know what a constant stress and struggle it is for community groups to stay funded and stay motivated and sometimes it just feels like a hamster wheel of you employ someone to do the funding so that you can employ someone to do the fundraising do you know what Mm. I mean like it it becomes really um, self-defeating in some ways so that the the group that's trying to affect change in our community is so mm. taken up with trying to raise money that they can't actually do the work that they're there to do totally. as effectively as they'd like to, yep. you know. Totally. I think there's a big level of burnout and exhaustion all around the place, but also in a lot of volunteer and community organising where people are really passionate. But, um, yeah, it's it's a hard slog. It's um, very difficult to try and get things moving sometimes. Yeah, and to get support and financial support to um, back it. And that idea of competitiveness, which is a very capitalist idea, is like we're all in an equal race, supposedly, and we're all competing against each other for to succeed. It's and it's a very, um, I don't know. I feel like it, it is very counter to what it takes for a community really to be strong, because that takes mm. everyone to be interwoven and trusting each other and not feeling like we're uh, you know, enemies or competing for the same resources, but that we're helping each other yeah. do the things that we all want to see happen. Yeah, it's de- a really different mindset, isn't it? Definitely. I think that sounds really interesting to sort of um, hear that example of uh, early gold rush times and the sort of, what were they called? Adventure, uh, the sort of deep individualism of everyone trying to carve out, uh, you know, some wealth for their own yeah. to understanding all of the needs and the care needed for people's you know, to survive and then the shifting uh, of instituting forms of care and community. Um, But that sort of shift also nowadays thinking about, you know, this highly neoliberalised way of living and the sort of competitive nature that is so ingrained in our dominant Western culture Mm. and thinking about... And even just the privatisation of so many things that used to be a collectively owned via the government sometimes Mm. institution Mm -hmm. like our medical health and our education and all of those things used to be collectively owned even if it was via the government yeah I mean we're very lucky in that there are you know there's Medicare there are social services and things like compared to uh, what was what it was like then but that's obviously becoming increasingly eroded Um, yeah so I think 
I found it really great chatting to Robin. We were walking through the botanical gardens, by the way, doing <laughs> some laps. Um, some I love those moments where you said hello to someone as they walked past. And <laughs> yeah, you always see a familiar face, even you know, in the couple of years that I've been there. Yeah, been here. I'm, I'm noticing that, and some powerful owls that we stopped to have a look at great. on the way. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. So. I- yeah. Go on. Oh, I'm, I mean, there's lots I can talk about, and I think there's a lot that links in with this next clip that we're going to share, um, which is Carl Eust talking about the endangered local Eltham copper butterfly mm. and the symbiotic relationship it has with some ant, an ant species and the sweet bursia plant that. Yes, and it's so interesting how, like, he didn't know what you've been talking about with Robin Neer, but he instantly went to those same themes of competitive versus cooperative. Mm. And I think you'll hear that as you hear this piece. So this is Carl Just, and it's just, it's a shorter piece. It's only three or four minutes long, so we'll be back in just a second. But have a listen to this and, and see if you can hear the links between this and what Robin had just been talking about. It's funny that I think our own ideas about how species fit together often reflect our own kind of way of seeing the world. So it's funny the theory of evolution, you know, it focuses on competition between species, but I think in Australia particularly it's quite obvious that kind of uh, species collaborating and working together is actually really essential for their survival. That's how a lot of species have managed to get through really rough climates and dry times and, you know, that kind of thing through actually helping each other rather than just this idea of competition so my favorite example is probably elfin copper butterfly it's a uh, yeah threatened butterfly species that we have in Castle Maine but yeah the elfin copper it's got this amazing relationship with a species of plant and a species of ant and it can only survive if it's got those other two species and so the way that relationship works is that the butterfly actually lays its eggs uh, at the base of the Bessaria plant uh, which is like a, a kind of small to medium spiny shrub with really beautiful white flowers, uh, really nectar-rich flowers. So it lays the eggs down the base of the plant and the ants actually have their nest down at the base of the plant. And they actually lay the eggs pretty much where the uh, at the ant's nest. And um, a lot of other species, they, they well, I mean humans do it as well, but there's a lot of communication that happens via pheromones. So it's kind of like chemical... Um, Chemicals are released that can actually, you know, um, transmit information, uh, different to using language, but a different, more using kind of chemical signals. And so when the butterfly is laying its eggs, it's, you know, these pheromones are released and the ants seem to get quite excited and they come out and actually receive the egg of the, ne- of the, of the butterfly and take it into their nest. And then the caterpillar actually hatches in the, in the nest of the ants. And every night when it's old enough, what it does over the kind of winter and spring months, the caterpillar come up at night time and feed on the foliage of the sweet bacteria plant and if you pick that caterpillar up and put it on any other plant it would just it wouldn't survive it wouldn't eat anything but the bacteria leaves it just it really is quite a lot of butterfly species are very exclusive in terms of what plant they'll eat and so only once the bacteria leaves and so every night the, the caterpillar is going up on this journey and the ants follow it and essentially look after the the caterpillar so uh, there's other things that could actually attack the caterpillar like wasps or other you know, more aggressive ants and this kind of thing but these little ants called the Natonkis ant they swarm all over the caterpillar's back while the caterpillar is just feeding on the Bessaria leaves and they protect it from other species and in return the, uh, the caterpillar's got these kind of glands on its back where it excretes 
uh, these kind of sugary substance like a kind of nectar and the ants are feeding on that as well so there's like this kind of exchange happening where the, the caterpillar is getting protected but the ants are also getting a bit of a reward so yeah it's kind of cool how there's uh, you need all three species the Bisseria plant you need the Notonchus ant for the Eltham copper butterfly to actually be able to survive anywhere and we're just walking up below Kalimna Park and there's uh, there's quite a few populations up in these hills here there's so much that we still don't even know about these species we're still discovering more information and a lot of it I think has been yeah pretty recent in a way um, in terms of how the relationship works but like I said there's so much we still don't know about how the ants communicate with the butterfly and how the relationships can work we're often like we're kind of always seeing things through the lens of how we see seeing through our language and but there's a whole other ways of being that are beyond our comprehension that was Carl Just and talking about the Eltham copper butterfly which is a, a species of animal that is symbiotic as he was explaining and it's something that's you know, we've had an Eltham Copper Butterfly Festival here in Castlemaine. We've, it's such a, a wonderful and rare thing. And it, I think it's such a beautiful example of exactly what Carl was talking about, of that um, collaborative and how much stronger you are when you're collaborating with another species than, mm-hmm. than when you're just trying to, you know, survive on your own. Survival of the fittest as a, as a myth of evolution. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, sort of integrating like Western science has now been catching up in terms with uh, you know non in, non um, with indigenous and other non Western um, paradigms and, and knowledge systems in terms of thinking understanding ourselves as interdependent and uh, part of a greater ecology rather than the hierarchy of survival of the fittest Mm. but it's about ingraining now that we know that's how ecologies work and how life functions it's like how do we integrate that knowledge into the ways we organize ourselves in our more human realms and Mm. I loved yeah this example of interdependence how deeply we need each other also across difference so these are obviously different species um but this idea of community not just being a monocultural thing, not just the one entity, but that solidarities are needed and relationships are needed across difference. And that's, I think, a really key thing where you can hold that, um, yeah, unique kind of features of, of different different communities or different species within mm. the same space. And um, yeah. I think that's a beautiful example with the ant and the, the sweet excretion of the... Um, butterfly as it's as it's resting yeah and I think the other key thing that I find really interesting uh, in both of those uh, excerpts that we just played with Robin and Carl is the sort of longevity or the duration both talk about really like long-term uh, support structures that are needed for supporting community and cultures to thrive uh, Robin, for example, was talking about churches, the building of you know big buildings, and how much they indicate a vision of a, of a long-term support structure for a community and a certain set of values and ethics and ways of being in relation with each other. And Carl's example of these endemic species that are specific to this region and the ants and the butterfly, the Eltham copper butterfly, only. Uh, you know, requiring only only each other. They won't eat any other plant, only this very specific sweet Bessaria plant that is specific to here. So these, again, are relationships that are formed over such long periods of time. So, 
you know, thinking about what are the support structures that we need in terms of adapting to change uh, and changing our own cultures in terms of creating support structures that can last over longer periods of Those time. depths of time. Mm. And the next piece we'll play from Carl explores that idea of, of relationships that have existed for like vast amounts of time. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I think what we'll do is break and have a bit of a song first so that we can everyone can go to the loo and do what you need to do. Um, so we'll be back in a minute and we'll have a few more minutes of Carl talking about different ecological relationships and how that, you know, hopefully reflects back to us what's possible in terms of um, community, really. Mm. And we've also got another short clip from Robin, if we have time, talking about some examples of community uh, action and, you know, self-advocating communities that then support each other long term and how that can change and grow over time. So hopefully we'll be able to fit that one in. But let's listen to a song first. This is your choice, Zoe. This is... um, Beverly Glenn Copeland. Yeah, Sunset Village is the name of the song and my friend Casey put me onto this song and this artist and it's a very relaxing song as you'll find out called Let It Go is the key key phrase that's said. But I think in relationship actually to what we just heard, for me I've been thinking a lot about uh, support structures and how to feel safe enough and held enough to actually relax and let it go and flow. So if you're listening and you're in a space where you want to just chill out for a moment, I invite you to let it go and enjoy this song. If you're driving, hold on to the wheel and stay focused. But anyone else, it's like, you know, in meditations, they're like, if you're driving, we don't recommend you do this meditation. But everyone else, let go, just relax. And maybe I'll just also add, (laughs) in terms of letting it go and support structures, just thinking also about community, like when you feel held and supported, you can chill out and not feel like you have to solve the world by yourself. I think that's so important. You see so much burnout and especially in the climate movement, there's a lot of guilt and a lot of personal responsibility and everyone feels like, you know, it's so much bigger than them. And the idea that all of us together can make change is actually kind of hard to grasp sometimes. Sometimes people feel like it's on me to solve all of the world's problems and that's just crushing. And Otherwise, you feel despair because you feel like I alone can't do it. Mm. But if you can really, really just lean into this idea that collectively maybe we can do it, that is where hope lies. Mm, Exactly. Welcome back. You're listening to Saltgrass. And I am in the studio today with Zoe Scolio, who has been working with Castlemaine Commons on some interview, collecting and contemplating what it is to be part of a community and what community resilience really means and what it means when we get together and work together collaboratively, not competitively. So we've listened to a couple of audio pieces already today from uh, Carl Just, who's an ecologist, and also Robin Anir, who's a historian and writer. That song, by the way, was gorgeous that we just heard. Can you tell us about that song again? Who was it and oh, yeah. what was it called? That was Beverly Glen Copeland, Sunset Village. And for those that were listening, I um, invited people to relax and let go if they wanted 
to do so. But more specifically, I was inspired by Carl's story of the Eltham copper butterfly and it's um, how it's looked after by the ants that suck on the sweet nectar that as a caterpillar they release and the ants protect it from wasps and other predators so that the caterpillar can just hang out in its cocoon and... That just sounds kind of ideal to me. You get to be that kid that just like munches away and there's all these things are happening around you to protect you and all you have to do is like be sweet. Yeah, exactly. It's a nice, <laughs> I really like that as an idea. It's such a great exchange. What a great <laughs> yeah. trade. But also, you know, to be a nice elf and butter caterpillar hanging out in your cocoon yeah. feeling safe and protected by all these ants as your protectors oh is it while ants. it's in the cocoon or while it's m- m- mooching around munching on well, things oh both. actually probably yeah i guess maybe both yeah. I, I i'm getting my facts wrong sorry i should um fact check no, these okay. details find the details right. i'm not um over if we can invite people if you know the answer to this question join us on facebook we now have the Castlemaine Commons page and the Saltgrass page. You can comment on either of those or together we have an events page on Facebook, which you can also write comments on and participate. And that's where we'll be giving you the information about upcoming episodes because this is not our last gig together. We've got two more sessions over the next two fortnights where we'll be sharing more excerpts of stories and also hopefully uh, collecting more of your stories and experiences of collective care and community organising. And if you want to talk to Zoe directly and tell her any stories you might have from your own life that are examples of this, what's that email address that they can email the Castlemaine Commons email address? Uh, good question. I uh, think it is uh, castlemainecommons uh, at gmail.com. All right, we'll put that on Facebook as well and have it for you next week, definitely. We, we had it last week, but I've, it's totally I'm pretty sure away. that's it. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we've got one more piece from Carl now. He's, he's talking about different symbiotic and collaborative kind of relationships that we can see in nature. And you caught up with him at Kalimna Park, didn't you, Zoe? Yeah, we had a walk at Towards Sunset on the edges of Kalimna Park and Moonlight Flat. And also the wind joined us. You'll be able to hear. If anyone understands wind, uh, please let us know what it was trying to say. (laughs) That's great. All right. So this is Carl Just, and we'll be back in a minute after we've had a listen. About to about 50 plants on this slope of the Emerald Lip Greenhood. It's a species of Terrastylus. A type of orchid? Yeah, a kind of orchid. Yeah, greenhood orchid. I'm not seeing any. Uh. This is a waxlip orchid leaf. Oh, yeah, what's that one, sorry? Uh, it's a waxlip orchid. Mm. Of course, it's kind of like a lovely purple flower on the south. But yeah, the orchids are really interesting because they uh, they also have these really uh, tight relationships, particularly with different species of fungus and uh, different species of pollinator. So, using this one as an example, the emerald that greenhood uh, it has it needs to grow where this particular fungus species is under. It's called a mycorrhizal relationship. So, I think it's about ninety percent of our land plants actually have this reliance on having fungus in the soil. 
so you know and it's only this you know talking about how recently this research has happened it's still we so much we don't know but even you know probably the last 30 years once again we've, we've become more aware of how much more important like the fungus is in the soil it's not just all about the nutrient balance it's like fungus is an essential part of uh of our soil and the way that essentially what happens is that the plant might sh- um will uh, share certain sugars it's getting from photosynthesis by converting the sunlight into kind of sugar and energy and carbohydrate shares that with the with the these they're almost like these kind of networks of they're like root-like structures but they're really really tiny these mycorrhizal fungus so you imagine these kind of threads through the soil and they'll connect to the roots of the plant and the plant can actually uh, share the kind of carbohydrates the sugars and then the the fungus will get uh, nutrients and things it's getting from like breaking down soil and rotting litter and stuff and then sharing that with the plant so a lot of our plants have this relationship but orchids are really specific in terms they really won't grow unless there's a specific fungus species in the soil so that's why some of our orchids are really restricted where they grow because they need the right species of fungus and the fungus isn't just everywhere so there's that really interesting relationship happening and uh, what's also cool about that is that the mycorrhizal fungus might be tapping into a whole network of plants so where it's getting that nutrients it might actually be getting kind of uh, you know getting some energy from say a berseria plant or a grass or something else and then it's kind of you know siphoning that off and sharing it with the orchid and the orchid sharing sugars there's all this stuff happening under the ground uh, it's been referred to as a wood wide web <laughs> these days it's like this idea of there being almost like an internet under the soil and then also what the orchids really need are, are different species of pollinator so and once again it's quite specific so uh, coming back to this emerald greenhood which is a, a rare species around here uh, it needs certain species of fungus gnat and the fungus gnats they're, they're quite an ancient kind of genus of, of uh, small gnat I think a lot of them uh, kind of almost go back to the kind of Gondwanan area like before Australia actually broke off from New Zealand and Antarctica like really ancient species of insect and so once again unless you have the pollinator in the ecosystem then you might lose the orchid but the pollinator is also relying on a whole bunch of other things so it needs uh, particularly like it seems to like the kind of shadier conditions it might need say you know rotting logs on the ground for it to to do its breeding uh, there's also a lot of spider orchids that have these really um, amazing relationships as well we've got the castlemaine spider orchid a species named just after the castlemaine area which is goes as far as uh, the kind of heathcote area but it's uh, the main populations are around castlemaine and it's this beautiful red spider orchid that we only get uh, in this region and that's got a similar relationship with a fungus needing that particular fungus under the soil and uh, also having uh, relationships with uh, thinine wasps these uh, species of they're kind of like a flower wasp and they spe- feed on lots of flowers from trees and things and then they also pollinate the, the spider orchid totally it's you know the connections just fan out like I said and there's you know I think seen really great um, like even pollinator diagrams where they show um, all the different colored lines between different species and you see that visualized it's just been incredible just seeing how you know everything is you know kind of interconnected in that way and um, there's so many different kinds of connections in in any kind of ecosystem there you go that was carl just talking about the ecosystems around some of the invisible i think and Mm. like really diversely collaborative systems around fungus in the soil which i think is relatively new knowledge as he was saying and it's really to me interesting how Mm. that works yeah it's It's mind-blowing yeah it really shifts yeah our understanding of how things survive and how we support each other yeah 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 
So we're, we're almost reaching the end of the show, but we do have one more piece from Robin and Nia, which I think really ties in with this. And for me, having heard Robin's one, I'm wondering if you will hear the same thing, people out there listening. Um, what Carl was talking about was how unexpected some of these collaborations are. And what Robin is about to talk about is the library uh, uh, community action group that emerged because the library was under threat at a certain point in time and needed community support to advocate for it. And so a group of people got together to form a group called FOCAL, F-O-C-L, which is um, Friends of Castlemaine Library. And she'll tell us all about it. But what I think you'll be able to hear in this story is how the networks that this group it established itself based on a single purpose and then with time it's established lots of connections and some of them are quite unexpected so have a listen to this and then we'll be back in a minute to sign off for the end of the hour so this is robin ania talking about the local library advocacy group focal delving into the history as I have over time just such a lot of groups who've risen and then disappeared um, who've you know uh, created and agitated for you know amazing um, developments and changes from you know schools hospitals to um, you know commemorations of things and parks like Kalimna and so on but um, Friends of the Library started 1995 in response to the Kennett government threat to oh it was this thing called compulsory competitive tendering cct where the library library staff were going to have to tender put in a tender to provide the library service these were just ordinary a librarian and a couple of library assistants were supposed to um create a tender document and and it could be you know somebody else could put one in and and uh, contest their tender so uh, it just seemed ludicrous i mean it was ludicrous so initially uh Focal, as it's called, Friends of Castlemaine Library was formed, and it was so much the heart of it was actually the U3A at that time, which was so many of them were the people who had come here in the, the 70s and 80s, a lot of ex school teachers and uh, fiery women. Um, just yeah, and we had public meetings, hundreds of people just saying, Leave our library alone. And that didn't go ahead, the CCT. And then, yeah, there was this threat from the commissioners to outfit some crappy um, old factory and move the library in there and do something else with the library. And again, Focal sort of rose up against that. But from there, the organisation, largely as a result of the people who are running it, so Louise Jepson has been president of Focal for maybe 20 years now, Um, Denise, she came up with the idea that it's important to support the reading of children whose fathers and mothers are in prison in one of the prisons around Castlemaine. And so she obtained funding for a project that's ongoing. and has been, I think, for 15 years, where Focal supplies uh, picture books and takes them into the prison. They have hire a worker who goes into the prison and works with men and women, some of whom have struggled to read themselves, and rec- end up recording them reading the story, and then the uh, the recording is sent to their their children, um, so mum or dad can still read them a story each day. 
and this is expanded to really um, help with reading in the prisons and uh, reading groups and stuff and that's one of Focal's main things so they have these huge book sales and so on and they do help put money towards things at the library sometimes if needed but it's less needed than it used to be because there's more government funding amazingly than it used to be so that's that's the Friends of the Library's main activity these days so it's really shifted but I find it um, I find it inspiring and really heartening that an organisation that is really based around a place that happens to have books in it can broaden its brief that way and take take books and reading and all the things that go with that, you know, to a bigger to a bigger world. So that's that's focal. Like I say, it comes down probably to to one person's mission, but it's still, you know, it's still under the name of focal and that grew out of, yeah. Just the usual thing, an agitation group that uh, arose from a from a government threat. So that's been over, whatever that's been, nearly 30 years. That was Robin Anir talking about the Friends of Castlemaine Library uh, group who have started their life as a advocating for the library group and have since grown and changed and adapted to supporting so many people in the community in really unexpected ways. Mm. For example, helping prisoners keep reading to their children bedtime stories, even though they're in jail. Mm. I think that's so beautiful. Yeah, they're both, both those two uh, little clips have so many amazing examples and, and threads between them around the themes uh, that we're exploring today. Mm. I think this thing as well of expanding the brief, like there's so much to unpack here and I know we're coming to the end, but I'm trying to think of like which thread to, uh, to pull. unravel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And this expanding the brief thing maybe is also mm. a nice thing to um, end on in that Friends of Castlemaine Library, for example, a library being seen as a place for books, but how to expand that notion or take those relationships and friendships and um, shared sort of um, passions and expand that to different fields so similarly like what other community groups exist say sports groups craft groups whatever that come together for a shared affinity around something but with that connection and community that forms you know that often can allow another layer of advocating of supporting of doing um, perfect yeah so get in touch and stay tuned zoe and i will both be back in a fortnight Grassroots. 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 Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.